Hey besties, so do you have random race car parts just sitting in your garage for like the past three or four years that you know you're not going to do anything with because it's been sitting in containers forever and you don't even know what they are anymore. So what do you do with those things? You go to racingjunk.com and you sign up for a free account and you post those things on there. Get rid of it because, you know, we're trying to downsize, right? We're not trying to keep a ton of stuff that we do not need. So yeah, go to racingjunk.com, sign up for a free account today. Uh, They do have paid tiers, but you can start out for free. And once again, that's racingjunk.com and they are the official classified for Race Wife Unfiltered. Welcome to Race Wife Unfiltered, hosted by your favorite bougie race wife, Rachel Thornhill. Every week, she shares stories of her life as a race wife and other women in motorsports, giving them a platform so their voices can be heard. Hey guys, welcome back to Race Wife Unfiltered. I am your host, Rachel Thornhill, and today we have a special guest with us. She is a two-time champion race car driver from New York. She raced uh, in the Xfinity, the NASCAR Xfinity Series, the NASCAR Euro Series. Um, she was also, you might, you might remember her from the show's survivor and she was a forbes 30 under 30 honoree and she currently has her own podcast called if i'm honest so uh welcome julia lander hi julia hi hi thank you for having me yeah um wow i mean you have so many different things that you have done um over the years um especially being in nascar as a woman you know obviously we don't have very many women that have really came through the ranks in nascar so um so tell us like how did your journey with racing even even start like where did you grow up in a you know in a family that raced or was that just something that you just kind of fell into yeah, so I did not grow up in a family that raced. Um, my, you know, I think my dad wanted to race when he was little, but was very quickly told no. Um, so between that and maybe wanting to live vicariously through us, um, and also the fact that racing was co-ed, the fact that it was something where my whole family could be involved in what we were doing in go-karting, um, they, my parents wanted to get me and my sister and brother involved. And so it was really cool because as a family, we slept to the track on the weekends and it was about two hours outside of New York was the track that we went to. And I caught the bug for it really quickly. And I loved so many things about it. And, um, when I was 12 or so, my dad had read, I think in like racer magazine, that there was a kid who had jumped up to the skip barber racing series for cars. And so my dad was like, ah, if that kid can do it, my kid can do it. And so they, my parents took the lead on getting me into that. But then I proved that I could be competitive in a race car and won a championship when I was 14 in the Skip Barber series. So once that happened, it was like, all right, I'm, I'm beating all these full grown men. I knew that it was a racing school, but it was still, I was 14. And um, it was kind of the confidence that I think me and my parents really needed to decide, all right, let's, let's try to make this a career. 
Yeah. Um, and, and that's amazing that like at 14, you already won a championship, you know, through Skip Barber, um, you know, especially not growing up really like, you know, around racing and you just kind of like just got into it um, to say that you were already pretty um, competitive at that young age. I mean that, you know, that's an amazing thing, which obviously would make sense why you moved up into NASCAR because obviously you, you know, you had the talent to, you know, Thank to you. Be able to yeah. Drive. yeah no, you're welcome. Yeah. And it, it was um, interesting because, you know, I got the start in formula cars and road courses. And so I think of myself as like having a road course background, but I switched over to oval racing when I was 16. Um, and I raced in Ford focus midgets with Bob East in Indiana. And, um, like, I realize I have so much more oval experience, but I still consider road courses home. Yeah, and especially that if that's something that's more your driving style and, like, what you really like to do, I mean, you know, that makes sense. So, I mean, do you think that you preferred, like, the road courses over oval? That That's why you say that you feel like, you know, that that's more your thing? I don't, not necessarily. I think that it's more, it feels like home because so much development and like discovery of what racing is and, uh, you know, growing as a, as a kid and then as a driver happened on road courses. So it's just like my, I think my biggest steps and moments of growth were in road courses, but I like to tell people that I, I, when it comes to driving a race car on a track, I prefer road courses. I think they're more interesting. I think they, you know, there's more variation in a road course. Um, but when it comes to active, like the craft of racing against other cars and other people, I like oval racing better because there's just a lot more that goes on a lot more of the time. And so, um, and passing can take a lot longer and you have to set up. And it's just, I find the racing more exciting on ovals, but the technical driving more exciting on a road course. Got it. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. You know, it's like, you kind of have a love for both of them, but for different reasons. So yeah, exactly. Right. So obviously you were in the NASCAR infinity series, uh, Xfinity series, and you were in the Euro series. So how did you end up transitioning to NASCAR? Yeah. So after doing Ford Focus Midgets when I was a teenager, I raced some late models like in the summer during college. And then I actually kind of, I don't, it's kind of a back step, I guess, and race Legends cars for a lot of the summers in the later part of college. And then, um, and then it was actually someone in Legends car racing that suggested we look at limited late model racing, which is NASCAR sanctioned. And so we found, I had known of Lee Pulliam um, from my earlier days of racing late models, like while early in college. And so I gave him a call and I was like, hey, I'd like to do limited late model racing. Do you guys have a program? And we figured out that I could, with the budget I had, that we could do the, um, the series at Motor Mile. So it was only eight race weekends, but I ended up winning half of them and then winning the championship. And so that was um, really great. Yeah. Um, and, and that's amazing that you went out there and just pretty much dominated. <laughs> so, but um, now the NASCAR Euro series, um, I know I'm not very familiar with that. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are not familiar with that series. So if you can tell us a little bit about it, like, you know, how, how that series works. 
Yeah, so the NASCAR Euro Series is, they take stock cars, and I would say they are, they're kind of like, they feel like a mix of what was Canaan West Mount Arca, like the Arca car, okay. but a little bit lighter. So maybe like a mix of like Arca. I've never driven a super late model, but maybe mm-hmm. like a mix of that. Like they're very, I think they were 2,700 pounds and 550 horsepower, I want to say. And they were just very nimble and I, and they didn't have a lot of body roll. Um, and that was something that I always struggled with in stock cars on road courses in the u.s like when we raced at sonoma or when we raced at um oh i'm forgetting the other road courses i raced at but it was just there's a ton of body roll and to me i don't love that as much so the euro series didn't have that and the series is licensed out um to a group in based in france and they license the nascar name out they have a they work with with nascar in the u.s but um you know, they kind of have a different structure. So you have 30 minutes of practice, two 30 minute practice sessions, and then a qualifying session that's 30 minutes. And then you have two 30 minute races on Saturday and Sunday. So it's seven weekends, two races per weekend. My year was a little truncated because it was the pandemic. So we had, yeah, we had four race weekends across three months, basically. And then, um, so we had four different tracks and then the last one was Valencia and we ended up doing four races on Valencia. So it was a very busy uh, week that week. And, um, but that's where I got on the podium. And, um, and so I think it was, the, I was the first woman to podium in either Euronesco pro or elite or Euronesco two, um, the racing, uh, categories. And it was so much fun. I wish I could have done it in a non-pandemic year, but right. it was because we didn't get any fan engagement. The fans couldn't come to the track and Europe had a pretty strict lockdown. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but it was really, it was really, really cool. The racers are really great. They race a little differently over there because they don't allow avoidable contact. And so, whereas NASCAR in the U.S. has a lot of bumping and pushing people out of the right. way and it's totally fine. In the Euro series, if you make contact that causes a crash or collision or someone to lose positions, then you're penalized most of the time. Oh, so wow. And and I like that. I know that a lot of NASCAR drivers and fans don't like that. But again, that's kind of what I was raised on from age 10 to 15. Like mm-hmm. you couldn't make contact. And my perspective is that it, it requires you to be really precise in your craft. Like anyone can knock someone out of the way, right. but to be able to have to cleanly pass them, I think, quite honestly, I just think it's more impressive and it requires more skill. So I really liked that. Um, and it was just a great series. Yeah. And, and actually I agree with you too. It's like, um, it, it makes you a better driver because you learn how to pass people in a clean way. Um, instead of feeling like you have to run people over to be able to get position. So no, I agree with you. Like the fact that they didn't let you do that, I think is, I think it makes for better drivers. Um, because you 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 have to learn to do that. And it's better racing too. Like I remember when we, when I was watching the cup race at Chicago mm-hmm. and I think it was Justin Haley and then Austin Dillon was in second and Austin Dillon was fast. Don't get me wrong, but he kept bumping him right at the, kept bumping Haley at the center of the corner. It's like, well, if he gets the lead, cause he just knocks him out of the way. Like it just, right. it, it doesn't sit right. Like it's mm-hmm. not impressive in my book. And so not that I'm the authority on what's impressive <laughs> or not in racing, but like, right. 
I'd much like, I'd much rather see side by side racing and, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, because it's like, if that's the only way that you can get around somebody, then that means that, you know, that means you're just either slower than them or you need to, you know, figure out a way to be a little bit faster and, you know, and pass them cleanly. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I feel the same way. It's like, I feel there's really no need to, um, you know, to bump people out the way like that at all. Um, especially like if you're, you know, if you're coming in from the side, like almost like trying to side draft, that can go extremely wrong <laughs> if you do totally. it wrong. So yeah, like I no, I completely agree with you. So obviously in the Euro series, you finished fifth overall, which is the highest ever for for any American. So obviously with that, did do you feel that you had like challenges being an American driver competing? in Europe? Like, was there some differences that you, that you noticed that you might've had to overcome? I'm going to be honest with you. I, if I'm honest, as it were, um, (laughs) a little plug there. Um, (laughs) I, I didn't so much. And, you know, I think partially because I was raised in New York city. Um, it, it, and like my now husband's French and like, like, I feel like I was familiar with the culture and some of my family's closest, some of my parents' closest friends were European. So um, I didn't feel like it was as much of a culture shock. Um, But I mean, I don't know how other people viewed me. Part of the issue with this, with that year was that like, they were really strict on um, basically like being with your own team bubble. And they all had like all the tracks we went to, we had our own garages. So they like really, there wasn't a lot of time where drivers were interacting with each other besides mm-hmm. on the, in your own, on your own team. And I had known one of my teammates and I quickly got to know the other guys. And so I didn't notice a big thing. But again, I have no idea what other people thought of me, um, but I didn't notice much of a, much of an issue. And everyone speaks English for the most part. So like on the radio and stuff like mm-hmm. some, sometimes a Southern accent can be just as challenging, if not more challenging right. than European accents. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, and that's a great thing that, you know, you were kind of familiar with the culture and stuff already. Cause yeah, like you mentioned, that's probably why you didn't really have like that culture shock because you, you were, you were used to being around, you know, other people that were, you know, that were European. So it's like, you, you didn't really like to you, that was just normal people. Like it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big deal. So yeah. Yeah. No, so yeah. I completely understand that. So obviously you also ended up getting your bachelor's degree and, you know, from Stanford. So how did you balance college with racing like yeah so i only raced during the summers so that made that Mm. a little easier um and so after but like throughout high school i missed like 100 days of high school i think to go racing or like 120 days of high school um and so i had to get really good at being really efficient and doing my schoolwork and maintaining grades and um 
I so I think I've I've I'm pretty good at getting stuff done quickly and well um, when it comes to schoolwork and balance like that, um, just out of necessity. And I'm really good at sleeping in modes of transport, like any airplane, I would take a nap. Any car ride, take a nap. <laughs> um, but but then with college, so yeah, I wasn't really racing during the school year. The only year I did was my junior year, and I was racing Legends cars in Northern California. So I think there were like four or five weekends in my spring quarter where I traveled to the track on Friday afternoon and raced on Saturday night and then came back on either Saturday night or Sunday. And that was really cool because it also meant that for the first time my friends got to come see me race, (laughs) especially like growing up in New York, like friends weren't traveling. And a lot of my racing as a teenager was in places I had to travel to. So my friends weren't coming to see me. And so it was really cool to have some of my college friends come out to Sonoma or Madeira or Stockton and like kind of introduce my worlds to them. Yeah. That, yeah. And that, and that's always a great thing when you're able to share like, you know, your experiences with your friends. Um, especially like when, like you mentioned, like when you lived in New York, you know, you were having to travel so much that your friends really didn't get a chance to, you know, experience that with you. But the fact that you were able to do that with your college friends is, is really yeah. cool. And plus, I mean, yeah. they got to go to some pretty awesome tracks too. So yeah, I think it was a little culture shock for them. The friends that went to Stockton definitely felt a little out of place. But um, and, but it's true. And like my my best friends from high school, when I was racing in the Canadian in the Pinty series, the Canadian mm-hmm. NASCAR series, we were racing at Chukasa, and they flew up to have a weekend in Toronto with me, and they got to come to the track, and it was the first race that they had been to, and you know I got that's where I, I led a lap and so they got to see that and then I crashed so it wasn't so good but um they got to see the whole experience and so that was really special to have that kind of girls weekend at the track where they got to cheer me on yeah yeah um and plus I mean they also got to have like an amazing trip I mean they just you know they flew up there and spent time with you you know they, they picked a cool place to go there are definitely more random middle of nowhere places <laughs> that they could have come to so Toronto's not a bad one. Right. Yeah, definitely. So obviously the other thing, one of the other things that you've done, and I mean, it might seem kind of random to people, but you were on Survivor. So yeah, tell us about that. Like what made you choose to to go that route and just and, and be on that show? I mean, it's so badass, right? And, you know, so I applied and I got on and um i i just like the women were really tough like Mm -hmm. i feel like many of the women on the show were really tough and um it was a cool challenge and i i was hoping that it would help with some of my like you know brand building for lack of a better phrase and uh it was very real it was very challenging fun is not the word i would use to describe it um it was there were some really great parts i thought the challenges (laughs) were a lot of fun um the social strategy was really hard and like uh you know just learning you know having everyone after themselves not being able to trust people so it was wild i'm so grateful i did it i there are so many things i would do differently like i don't have a lot of regrets in life um, Mm -hmm. but how i how i played that i would go back and do it differently but also i like i was a baby on the show i was 20 i was the youngest person there Mm -hmm. and just didn't really have a lot of real life experience. And so I think real life experience is very important on that show. Cause like you're dealing with a lot of really 
random, sometimes crazy, sometimes unpleasant people. (laughs) And I think the more you have to deal with that in real life, like the better you can handle it on the show. So Mm -hmm. I have applied several times since then and have not heard back because I'm myself, but I don't think that's going to happen at this point. But if CBS is listening, they they know that (laughs) that I'd like to. I've learned my lesson. Well, and and I mean, like you mentioned, you were 20 at the time. So obviously, you know, the way that you handled yourself back then is probably nowhere near how you would handle yourself now. You know, Um, I mean, we, we all grow from, you know, I mean, I know when I was 20, the things that I did at 20 is not what I would do today. (laughs) You know, so yeah, Yeah. so I totally understand why, like, you would, you would be like, well, if I go back, I do it different this time. But I don't know, maybe, maybe CBS just doesn't want people that have already been on it. Maybe they just want like, yeah, Random they have people. very specific seasons where they have returning players, and I just I don't know what they're planning for. But um, <laughs> I don't know. At this point, maybe I'm like, uh, I like the comfort of my bed. I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Right? Like, do I really want to put myself do through I that really again? <laughs> right. Got some nasty bug bites. Nasty. Oh so. yeah, like and oh, I can imagine. I mean, because you're, I mean, you're out there just out in the open and you don't know what's going to be happening it's just uh. that's awful that's awful <laughs> great but awful right right so obviously um with you being on survivor so like did do you feel that like it that it did like after you got off the show that it like changed like your career in in some way like did it do you think it like impacted it impacted it in some way i don't think it impacted partially because i got the very boring edit so that did not help anything (laughs) um but what it did do is that it made me really reconsider kind of how i was presenting myself and how i was carrying myself and it made me a lot more aware of you know being conscious of how i project myself because you know I want to try to help people see me in the light that I see myself and so kind of that self-awareness and authenticity was kind of the kick in the butt like you gotta be more pay more attention to this especially in big groups of people where you don't know anyone right yeah no I I totally understand what you mean and obviously seeing yourself on tv Right. It was probably like a, a a different type of experience because like you mentioned, like some, of, some of the stuff was edited out. So, um, yeah. 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 And it was like, I think I learned a lot about production and reality TV and it's very real and, and like nothing, nothing. I don't, I don't think anything was like forced or anything mm-hmm. in terms of conversation, but, um, yeah, just, you know, realizing that you don't always get the full story. But I think I kind of knew that going in, like just knowing how Hollywood works and how right. like, press works, like people take take what works for the story they're trying to tell, which I knew going into it. Um, so yeah, just it made me a little more conscious of my public facing uh, persona. Right. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. And then obviously that would lead into pretty much what you're doing now with, you know, motivational speaking and, and, and things like that. So, um, so I'm guessing, you know, that might've helped you transition into that role. Cause you were, you know, more focused on like how you presented yourself, um, you know, going forward. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that that moment, that whole experience with Survivor, again, like was the kick in the butt to be more intentional. And so was I was definitely cognizant of that then. Like every time I go on stage, interviews, you know, podcasts, whatever it is, or just like being in person, being at events, meeting people. So it was a really good lesson to learn. Painful way to learn it, but good way to, good thing to learn. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure not everybody wants to have to learn that way um, by going on a reality show and being stuck in the middle of nowhere, you know? Um, yep, exactly. So, but, um, so obviously let's talk about your podcast. Um, you know, if I'm honest, I know it's a little bit newer, but obviously, you know, you're really sharing a lot of you know, a lot of you, you know, it's, it's all about you and like your personal experiences and stuff. So what inspired you to start the podcast? Yeah. So thank you. And I, it's been such a journey. And as we were talking about earlier, like total appreciation for everyone who has a podcast. It is so much work if you, especially if you do your own editing, which I do. And basically, so I, you know, I, I earn my living through keynote speaking right now and I, amongst some other stuff, but that's the main thing. And what I was finding was that, you know, I would give this great keynote for 45 minutes. I'd have a great Q and a with the audience. And then that was kind of the end of my interacting with them and they could follow me on social media, but um, you know, I didn't find the big social media platforms as like organic ways for me to convey the similar content. And so I was chat chatting with my agent, you know, back in February ish. I was like, well, what do you think we can do or I can do that will kind of expand the speaking, make it make, like maintain like my own intellectual property, but make it available to more people. And she had suggested a podcast. And I thought, ah, oh, this is interesting. And so I, I thought about it and I figured that the, I try to keep it to a 20 minute episode. And really what I do is, is have like a deep dive into a theme and I share my personal experiences, my suggestions for other people. And so like, I have one where I talk about how Taylor Swift taught me to know my financial value because of something she did that I read about when I was like 22. And then, you know, when is the real world knowing how to like stand up for myself from a financial value standpoint? And I try to keep it very honest, very raw. Um, and yeah, it's supposed to, it's supposed to be for people who are trying to, you know, either better themselves or, do a deeper dive into kind of these bigger philosophical questions that we have. I try to entertain a little bit. And I also hope that people, by being vulnerable in the stories that I tell, help people feel like they're not alone if someone else is going through this. Because um, that feeling like you're less than because you're feeling certain ways is really not great. And so, yeah, I've introduced a guest segment now. So every so often I'll have a 30-minute guest episode. But... Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of work. I'm I'm glad that people are receiving it well. And yeah, so if anyone wants to check it out, if, if I'm honest with Julia Landauer, and we love a share, we love a subscribe. Promoting it is so hard. Like, yeah. it's like and, and because it's more serious, I know it's not like passive content to consume or like more lighthearted. So it um again, it's still entertaining and everything, but um there's we we touch on some deeper subjects. Yeah. Um, and, and like you mentioned with a podcast is like the biggest thing is promoting it and yeah, it's hard. It's not easy, but the thing is like, honestly, I think with a podcast though, no matter what it, 
like you mentioned, it's content that stays. Like it's not yeah. something that, you know, like you mentioned, when you go out there on stage for 30 minutes or something, that's it, you know? And then there's nothing, there's n- like, that doesn't stay around forever. And it's the same thing with social media, like all this short form, instant gratification content, it, it's gone after that. Like it, you know, it only stays around. Most of this stuff only stays around for 24 hours or is relevant for 24 hours. And then people don't right. care about it anymore. So, right. yeah. So like the whole long form content, like podcasts or like YouTube channels or things like that, you know, you can have people that see your content two, three years down the line, you yeah. know, and it's really cool. It's a nice platform. And I just kind of wish I had started sooner. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's never too late to start. And, I, and you know, I mean, and to be honest, like, that's something that I've noticed. Like, supposedly there was a thing that came out that there's 4 million podcasts right now. But, I believe it. But most of those are, are not even, I mean, they're, they're there, but they're not putting out consistent content. So mm. a lot of them are not putting out content anymore. Like if you look in certain, you know, certain depends on what your niche is, but like, for example, mine, like with motorsports and stuff, you do have some that put out regular consistent content, but there's some that they stopped putting out content like in 2020 or 2021. And they haven't put out anything else, but their stuff is still there. So people still find their stuff. So they are still considered relevant. So yeah, yeah, it's a lot of that. It's like, yeah, we have a lot of podcasts, but a lot of people stop, you know, Mm, they stop mm -hmm. after, you know, it, it, it looks like a huge statistic, but most people stop at episode three and they don't go past that. Well, I get that. And like what my producer told me was like, mm-hmm. you know, it is a marathon. Like yeah. it's going to be a slow start. Like mm-hmm. social media followers do not necessarily translate into listeners. And right. Just like be committed to doing mm-hmm. this like for the long haul. And yeah. I'm glad they said that up front because it is a slow start. Like, it anything, is. Unless you already have your built in like extremely large following that you know are going to come mm-hmm. to the content. It's, a, it's you got to build. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I'm glad they told you that because there's some people that they get into the whole podcasting thing and they think that they're automatically going to get like all these, you know, these listens and all these followers and stuff, but you know, not right away. I mean, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, like for like you and I were talking earlier, I've been doing this podcast since December of last year, you know, now has it grown a lot faster than what I expected? Absolutely. But I mean, at the same time, it, you know, I'm, I don't have like millions of followers. I don't have, right. you know, like I don't have like this huge amount of, you know, amount of people following me, but I'm okay with that because it's like, you know, it will grow, like it'll grow eventually. Like, you know, it, I just have to be consistent with it. And yeah, I mean, and it'll go, and it'll be the same thing for you. You know, like it's just, we just have to be in it for the long haul. <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So w- speaking of which, obviously you have the podcast going on, you have, you know, the motivational speaking. Is there any, like any other projects or anything that you have going on, like for the future, re- whether that means you jumping into a race car again or something? <laughs> well, if anyone 
anyone wants to put me in a race car, um, I'm available. So um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I I'm kind of figuring out what else what else is out there. What's next? I love racing. I hope to keep doing it. It's just it's so expensive, and mm-hmm. sponsorship is so hard to come by. Um, so there's that but you know i'm i'm this is keeping me pretty busy right now and you know i still watch a lot of racing and mm-hmm. you know get out to the track every so often so um but my husband and i like want to buy a go-kart and so we're thinking about maybe having a go-kart so we can go up to track house motorplex um north of charlotte and do that and He's a little bigger than me, but we're not like that different in size. So I think we could like share a seat and I get an insert and and, uh, we could make it work. So that could be really fun too. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. And, and like, like you said, that would just be, you know, something for fun. Like, it's not like you're trying to like make it a career or something. It's like, you guys are just, you know, doing something just to have fun together. So, yeah. And, and for me, like I've now driven a lot of different types of vehicles and, competitive go-karting I think was like the most fun the most action-packed um so I was a lot younger when I did that so we'll see how my joints and my body handles it at this point because it's a little rough on your system but yeah that would be fun yeah yeah um and and I totally understand what you mean it's like once you've driven like multiple things it's kind of like you know you might want to go back to a specific thing. Um, I know like my husband, he started in carts and then it's like now, and then he's moved up, like he moved to sprint cars and then he moved to now he's driving a dirt late model. And it's like, he's doing it mainly because we don't really have, like we don't really have sprint cars racing around here anymore, but every time. And where are you again? Oh, Louisiana. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. We're in Louisiana. So yeah, like, Sprint cars were kind of big around here for a while. And then it's like, now we, they don't race them anywhere around these mm-hmm. tracks. Like if they do race here, it's like once a month. And it's like, hmm. so my husband's like, I need something where I can race consistently. And late models is automatically like you can race all every single yeah. weekend. So, yeah. but if he could, he would go back to a sprint car. Like he wouldn't even think twice about it because it's like um, a friend of his said they might have had a chance for him to race uh, this weekend in his oh, car. Because, wow. um, but they ended up raining. They already rained it out because it's been uh, raining okay. up there for a while. <laughs> but yeah, it, he. I was like, if you get in that car, do not tell me that you want another sprint car because he's bad about that. Like he'll get in another car or he sees a sprint car. If we go to like a race and they're, mm-hmm. and they're racing and he's always like just fiending to get back into one. And I'm like, don't tell me you want another one. He's like, trust me, I would, I do want to tell you that, but I know that I won't be able to race. He knows better. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. He, but I can just tell like the look on his face. He just wants one so bad. So yeah, I, yeah, I totally understand that. So it's kind of one of those things. But, um, so another thing too, and, um, I know like you're a major advocate for like STEM, um, education and women empowerment, obviously. And, you know, you and I are both on that same page because I mean, that's a huge thing about women being in motorsports, no matter what they do, um, right. whether they're a driver or a crew chief or 
whatever. So, um, like, are you like, are you like involved in like any, any specific initiatives or like causes or anything like that, that support, you know, women in motorsports or in STEM? Well, so yeah, so multi, multi answer to that question. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I do very actively support two charities that are called the tech force foundation, which helps to educate about, um, like, technical vocation. So a lot of automotive technicians. um, And so they have a lot of grants and scholarships for students. So I think that's really great for the technical hands-on experience. I also really support the One Love Foundation, which helps to educate about healthy versus unhealthy relationships. So that's empowerment in general. Aside from that, like I, you know, I, whether it's through speaking or, you know, shares on social media or just talking with people, like, Groups like WIMNO, Women in Motorsports North America, which is run by Lynn St. James and Cindy Sisson, and they're doing a lot to help promote women. So helping where I can, supporting them at their summits. Um, you know, organizations like Shift Up Now that's run by Pippa Mann, um, you know, trying to contribute to them and help them and, you know, share share when women are doing successful, cool stuff on social media and, you know, just being, being available to talk to friends like a friend of mine who's racing this weekend. Um, she's racing in a car that a type of car that I had raced already. And she just called me asking if I could give any advice as to how the car drives and like happy to share that. So that kind of just like grassroots level support, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, I've done stuff like speaking at coding camps and, and being featured as like, you know, kind of showcasing different areas that a STEM career could lead. Cause I think, I think there's not only are there stereotypes about STEM careers, but that, that kind of push women out. But the reality is that most industries have some technical component. And so the more technically literate you are, the more opportunities I think anyone has. And, you know, I try to talk about where I can, you know, things like there's a study that third grade teachers were grading, um, girls short answer math and science problems harder than they were grading boys and Mm -hmm. so there's kind of this systemic kind of barriers that girls are facing early on and the more that we talk about this and share these studies I think the more that we can be proactive about trying to call that out can't you know stop it so that we don't have these kind of systemic barriers that that get in the way yeah and honestly that that study that you mentioned was is very interesting. I had no idea that they were literally, you know, judging them differently from the boys in their class. And like that, you know, that automatically makes it harder for young women and young girls to, you know, to move into, into STEM, if they're automatically going to be, you know, judged like twice as hard out the gate, and I mean, you're talking yeah. about third grade. Um, and yeah. Yeah. That and I don't know the more. difference in like, like how much harsher they were great, great mm-hmm. but I think it's similar to, you know, there, when scientists or researchers submit scientific journals right. or research for papers, a lot of times women authors do not get accepted to journals as much. And so there have been studies where if it's a gender neutral name or just the first letter of the first name and the last name, you see more women that get published. And so I think it's just like on a, you know, on a younger level that that's happening, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And like you, like, like you mentioned, I mean, that, 
that creates this stigma and it makes it harder for women to really even pursue that. Like, and yeah. that's why we don't have as, as much women in STEM. Um, and I, I know for a fact, I work in tech. So, you know, I, yeah. I see this on a regular basis. I mean, there's a very small amount of us, um, just the company I work at, there's uh, like, I can count on my hand how many women we have and we have like over 600 employees and yeah. we have barely yeah. any. Um, and it's like, it, yeah, we've got like maybe 10, 15 women. That's it. Yeah. And there's it, room it, for improvement. Right. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. There's b- barely any of us and there's, there's, you know, mainly men and, um, and you know, you can even see, you can even see the difference, like just how you're talked to by like yeah. clients and things like that when, because they expect you to not understand the technical yep. aspects of things and stuff. So yeah, I yeah. go through that on a daily basis. So I totally get yeah. what that's like. And it's, yeah. And it's just like, I, I don't like to see other women struggle with that either. Um, and it, yeah, it's like really important that we have more women in, in these fields so it becomes normalized and we don't yeah. have like a small amount of women in, you know, in all these industries. So totally. Yeah. So, um, so what, it, so last question. So what, um, what would you, uh, like what advice would you give like any women or, uh, that are wanting to come up into like racing, you know, or wanting to pursue STEM, you know, like what, what kind of advice would you give them? I have a couple of different things. Mm -hmm. I think one, uh, networking and one, like, you know, networking and, and meeting as many people who you never know how you guys might be able to work together in the future, but kind of establishing your presence in the industry is important. Um, I have found that when I can, when I get the sense that a guy could be a good ally to be able to feel safe with vocalizing some of the discrimination I'm feeling or act like specific things that I can share, like this is how I'm treated differently um, and leaning on those allies to speak up. Maybe if your voice is not loud enough, which unfortunately is still the case sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really important. I think also regardless of what industry it's in, um, having a really supportive inner circle and whether that's just like one person, like your partner, a best friend, a sibling, a family member, whatever, or a group of people that you can go back and lean on and, um, you know, ask for advice and, and being, so that's another thing. And then my last bit of advice I've given a lot here is that um, especially women will get, I think, a lot of unsolicited feedback. Maybe it's on how you're presenting yourself, how you're dressing, how you're acting, how you're speaking with people, like any number of things. Um, be critical about whose advice you're listening to and who's who you like will think further on with their advice. Like if it's not someone you respect, if it's not someone who has a relevant background, like don't necessarily try to please everyone. That's something I wish I had learned earlier. Yeah. I have to agree with you on that one. Um, the unsolicited advice. (laughs) Yeah. That happens a lot pretty much in any, you know, in anything. 
Um, and yeah, not taking a lot of stuff to heart. Um, yeah, I, that was a hard thing for me to, to do as well. It's like, it took me too long to figure that out, (laughs) But, but yeah, but yeah, I definitely agree with you there. It's like, there's certain things that, you know, kind of, you, maybe you might hear them out, but it doesn't mean that you have to like fully take their advice unless you truly want someone means well yeah like even if someone means well think about like are they knowledgeable enough to know to be able to give advice Mm -hmm. on this right so just being critical of the feedback you're receiving i think will be beneficial regardless of who you are what industry you're in right yeah no i agree there well, thank you so much for being on the show. I so appreciate it because I know like you, you're extremely busy and I'm so glad that you were able to come on here and share your story and, you know, let more people know about you. And guys, I will definitely uh, link like all of Julia's social media, her website, her podcast. So you guys definitely go listen. It's really good. I know because I listen. So yeah, um, definitely go check out her podcast if I'm honest. Um, And yeah, no, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I now get to go wander out in this 90 something degree weather to go grab some groceries because my car is getting serviced right now. So fun (laughs) times. But uh, thank you for having me. Hey besties. So do you have a small business or possibly a large business, whichever size it may be? Uh, that you want to be advertised here on the podcast. If so, let me know. Um, And you can sign up for our $5 Biz Glow Up Marketing Strategy Plan. Literally, guys, that's $5. And you'll work with me one-on-one to come up with the best marketing plan for your business based on your budget so you can be a sponsor on the podcast, and also be a part of multiple advertising mediums uh, from social media to the actual podcast to race car placement. Um, And we have other mediums that are going to be coming up in the future as well. So definitely reach out to me. And there will also be a link in the show notes so you can sign up to get that strategy. So what are you waiting for? Go ahead, click that link in the show notes and let's work together to help up-level your business. All right, guys, so that is it. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Julia. I know I did. Uh, It was really great to meet her and talk with her and have her share her story here and learn more about, you know, how she got into racing and obviously Survivor and what she's doing now. So um, I'll have all of her social media links, also the organizations that she mentioned that she um, that she supports in the show notes. So you guys can check those out. And, um, and yeah, guys, so Talladega is coming up. Okay, Talladega will, I will be going to Talladega starting on the 28th of September and I'll be back um, October 2nd. So I will be creating content up there um, 
along the way and, um, and doing all different type of things. So definitely make sure that you are subscribed to our VIP section newsletter because that is where you're going to find out all the behind the scenes stuff that's going on. Also, you'll find out who our next guests are because I always tell the VIPs before anybody else. Nobody else finds out until the day that the podcast comes out. But VIPs get to listen to the podcast the night before it actually comes out and they and they get to know who the the next guest is days prior. So they know everything that's going on before anyone on social media knows. So definitely make sure you click on that link in the show notes. And that's it, guys. So I will see you on next week on Tuesday if you are just listening um, in Monday night if you're a VIP. So that's it, guys. Take care and manifest your best life.